0: Hey everybody, welcome to OK Talks. I'm your host, Oliver Kendall. For those who don't know me, I am a political nerd with a background in international security policy and experience working in the US domestic political space. Uh, I started this podcast out of a hope that those experiences combined with a number of years living outside the country uh, would put me in a good position to shed some light for folks back home on some events of note going on in the rest of the world uh, and also to help people from outside the United States understand what the hell is going on uh, back home in my own country. Well, uh, it would appear that my attempt to bring this podcast back in some form has not been smiled on by the podcasting gods, or at least not by Apple, uh, since my second episode, since trying to do this a couple weeks back, uh, which came out on every other platform about a week ago, reflecting on the death of former Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev. Uh, has apparently not gone up on Apple, so I'm hoping that that will A, get fixed, and B, uh, not happen to this episode. I am very much still, as I mentioned in my Hey Sorry I Ghosted You episode, uh, trying to determine what form this podcast will take, uh, and how I can continue to show up in your podcast feeds every so often to... Uh, weigh in and share my opinion where I hope it's helpful on uh, important events going on in the world uh, while also being able to maintain some semblance of a social life and my day job. Continues to be a work in progress, bear with me. So, as was the case uh, the episode before last, or I guess the last episode if you use Apple and Apple still hasn't gotten their shit together by the time this one comes out, I'm yet again feeling uncharacteristically optimistic I'm going to take a couple of minutes today to talk about some of the reasons why that is. Now, the first thing is over the last little while, there have continued to be a bunch of really positive economic indicators. Now, to be fair, certain economic indicators have been really good for the last number of months anyway. I mean, America right now has historically low unemployment, uh, which is usually considered to be a very good thing. But a lot of this has been overshadowed by the fact that inflation has been really high. In case anybody doesn't know what this means, although that's hard to imagine at this particular moment because the term is ubiquitous at the moment, inflation just basically refers to a general increase in prices. In short, like, your money is worth less than it was uh, before, which sucks. Nobody likes that. Um, And inflation for this last year, for a number of reasons, has been very high. Um... Over the last many, many months, at least in the United States, Republicans have been trying to make hay over inflation as though it's something that's President Biden's fault. Just for the record, as I said a a while ago to my American listeners, it is not. Inflation here in Spain, for example, is actually at least one or two percent higher than it is in the United States. And President Biden is, in fact, not the president of Spain Uh, or of any other European country where inflation, I think almost across the board, is also higher than it is in the United States. But yeah, inflation sucks. Uh, However, this past month, uh, it started to tick down slightly, which is good news. Uh, Additionally, gas prices uh, have gone down a little bit, um, actually more than a little bit. They've been going down consistently for at least like three months, uh, which uh, even for those of us who aren't driving every day, this is still good news for because it affects everything from... Airfares to, I mean, really almost everything is affected by high gas prices. So the fact that gas prices have dropped consistently uh, for the last uh, several months and continue to do so is just good economic news. Studies also show that uh, average people seem to be noticing these things. uh, And we can see that in a fairly marked rise in consumer confidence for the first time since, I think, March of this last year. Uh, Consumer confidence basically is just a general, like a study, a sort of statistical analysis of the way consumers are feeling and how likely they are to spend money based on the, how they feel about the economy. And consumers spending money on stuff is you know, generally good for the economy, which is you know, a virtuous cycle uh, the further it continues. Now, these general good economic numbers, particularly, I think particularly the gas prices thing and also reflected in the consumer confidence thing, are really good news for fans of democracy in general. Uh, anybody who knows anything about American politics knows, uh, and anybody who doesn't know anything about American politics can listen to my podcast, and I will tell you, in this case, knows uh, that in general, in midterm elections, that is to say, elections where the entire House of Representatives, a number of governors, and one third of the Senate, but not the president, are up for re election. Whichever party won the last presidential election tends to get its ass handed to them. Now, during the normal course of things, or in a moment where American politics was more normal, that is to say, where a moment wherein one of America's political parties had not effectively been hijacked by an extreme right authoritarian movement bent on, let's say, generously weakening. Uh, democracy in the United States, in a normal moment, uh, that wouldn't necessarily be a problem. But in this particular moment where the Republican Party's fever has just not broken, um, a moment in which many of the Republican nominees for important state-level offices are deniers of the veracity of the last election promising to employ legal warfare effectively to block or rig the next presidential election and do other things to further weaken democracy on top of the damage already done by their right-wing allies on the Supreme Court uh, and other Republicans that are already in office. A moment where many of the Republican candidates are straight-up conspiracy theorists about many more things than just these election things. Everything from accusations of child-eating pedophiles in the Democratic Party, etc. This is not really a moment where we can afford to have uh, the party that won the last presidential election have its ass handed to it in the midterms. Because having one or both houses of Congress be taken over by the kinds of people that I just described could result in A, catastrophic damage being done to the integrity of the next election, and B, Catastrophic damage being done to the ability of this administration to continue to support Ukraine, clean up after the pandemic, fix the economic mess left by the predecessors, you know, gradually repair America's global reputation, and a whole bunch of the other nearly insurmountable tasks confronting the Biden administration, all those tasks will be hampered or made effectively impossible if one or both houses of Congress flip. Uh, and the administration is then having to constantly respond to subpoenas and bullshit investigations from, let's say, a hypothetical House Judiciary Committee under the authority of absolutely insane lunatic suit coat boycotting Congressman Jim Jordan of Ohio who would subpoena everything that moves and grind the administration to a halt. Okay, went further down the rabbit hole than I intended uh, as to just how terrible I think this current crop of Republican candidates are and how bad I think it would be for the country were they to uh, achieve any serious electoral victory this fall. The point that I was trying to make was that, in general, according to American political gravity, basically, the first election that comes after a presidential election goes to the party that lost the last presidential election. And in this particular circumstance, we can't afford to have that happen. We cannot afford for you know, normal political gravity to exist in this election cycle. It was looking very much up until a couple of months ago like not only was normal political gravity going to apply, uh, but it was going to be even heavier than usual because of various bits of bad economic news. A lot of which now is less relevant, as I've just described, with inflation improving, gas prices lowering, and consumer uh, consumer confidence improving considerably. In addition to the good economic news being a boost to Democrats potentially in the midterm elections, provided it all doesn't fall apart before then, some more polls have continued to come out showing that a lot of Americans really do seem to... A, feel better about the economy, and B, that's allowing them to, let's say, have the bandwidth to think about other issues that really matter. A lot of Americans really do seem to care about the fact that there is a profound, unprecedented, at least since like the mid-1860s, threat to American democracy. In addition to more Americans having the bandwidth to pay attention to these other issues, I think it's also very fair to say that President Biden has helped bring the issue of the very profound threats to American democracy to the fore over the last couple of weeks by really taking the gloves off in a couple of speeches that he's given where he's addressed this issue. It's, I also think, particularly telling that the political right in America hasn't really been able to put together a coherent response to anything President Biden has said on the merits resorting instead to basically putting out some memes about the fact that they think it looked funny that Biden gave one of these speeches in front of a wall that was backlit red, which, I don't know, something something Star Wars Emperor. Those who wanted to put together some sort of criticism that was a little bit more coherent than just pointing out that President Biden making a fist during a speech, something politicians never do, in front of a wall that was kind of colorful, with some reference to a sci-fi movie, almost universally cried about President Biden having called a certain subset of the Republican Party semi-fascist and bemoaned the divisiveness of his speech. Divisiveness. This coming from a movement that over the last couple of election cycles has worked tirelessly to suppress the votes of those they think won't vote for them, as I've discussed further in episode four of this podcast, Democrats versus the Anti-Democrats. A movement that was actively planning to preemptively undermine the 2020 election, as I go into further in episode eight of this podcast called Can American Democracy Survive 2020? And then when that didn't went out, didn't work out, went to unprecedented lengths as we're learning now from the January 6th committee to try to overturn the election at every possible procedural step up to and including when that failed, thousands of them showing up at the Capitol on January 6th at at the urging of that movement's leader and tried to violently overturn the election resulting in the deaths of multiple police officers, you know, back the blue guys, Uh, and the attempted murder of hundreds of elected officials, up to and including the vice president from their own party. But unfortunately, the scum who showed up at the Capitol on January 6th were just the tip of the iceberg uh, in terms of people on the right who wish violence on those who they disagree with. We would know this, even if we didn't see... All the time now, people on the right in the United States moaning about the January sixth people who are arrested as political prisoners, which in this case sounds even more stupid than it sounds when Catalan separatists in my neck of the woods complain about the temporary imprisonment of the leaders of the illegal referendum to separate this province off from Spain. You know, what, I'm going to save that from another episode or for another episode even if we didn't see Americans on the right complaining about the fact that January 6 rioters were arrested, it would be painfully obvious that this is a movement where hundreds, if not probably thousands, maybe tens of thousands, maybe more, I I really don't know, but a, a startlingly high number of whom wish active physical harm on people they disagree with. And you can see this in the way that on the right the way that liberals and democrats are spoken about is like with increasingly creepy gross like eliminationist rhetoric like the persistent references to pedophilia i mean it sounds kooky but like this is actually a tried and true tactic of right-wing authoritarians like calling your political opposition or implying that they're engaged in pedophilia is just a thing that's considered so beyond the pale that it is just a, a really brilliantly effective way of dehumanizing your political opponents. It used to be something, aggressively hinting that all your opponents are pedophiles, used to be something that only Putin did. No wonder he actively interferes in American politics to help these people get elected then. And lest somebody tell me that this is just a few crazies that are saying that no, No, it's not. Like, Republican members of Congress have said this up to and including members of the Republican leadership have made this kind of pedophilia reference. This is a movement that has turned a teenager who took an assault rifle that mommy illegally gave him deliberately showed up at a protest where he knew that there could be conflict and use that rifle to murder multiple left-wing protesters. Seriously, he speaks like at, at their conferences now. If you don't think that there are thousands of fascists in the American Republican Party right now who wake up every day wishing that they could do what Kyle Rittenhouse did, you are out of your mind. But President Biden's speech was divisive. Yeah, I don't think that's going to work. I don't think it'll work any better than the endless attempts during the 2020 election cycle to paint Biden as some kind of radical pinko commie socialist who's gonna like nationalize the means of production. It didn't work during the 2020 election cycle because Biden just doesn't give off that vibe. He's not that guy, man. Like, this is not, you know, this is not AOC plus three generations. I mean,. It's just, it's not him. This is a guy who's been a team player for his entire professional life, who is famous for bipartisanship, and in fact drives a bunch of Democrats crazy with his constant attempts to reach across the aisle. That's why I think him taking the gloves off here will actually be effective. And it's why I think that the reaction of certain Republican leaders to be shocked, shocked at how divisive it is that President Biden would call fascists fascists is probably going to fall flat. Finally, speaking of bad news for fascists and good news for fans of democracy... Ukraine. Absolutely kicking ass this week. Now, I should just say here, the podcast analytics reveal that there are in fact actually a couple of folks in Russia who with some degree of consistency listen to this show. So, first of all, thank you for listening. But secondly, I doubt that there are any hardcore Putin fans who would still be listening to this show after all this time when I've frequently and aggressively criticized Putin's Russia on here. And I should say, to anyone in Russia who's opposing the regime, I'm with you. But in case there's anybody listening who's firmly on the side of long live, dear leader Putin and all success to glorious special military operation to denazify the Jewish-led Ukrainian government because, let's be real, Ukraine isn't a real country anyway, you might want to switch to RT because this is just going to get uncomfortable. That being said, this episode has already gone on quite a bit longer than I had originally anticipated, so let's see how much more I say here and how much I end up needing to leave for a future episode. But it would be impossible to talk about things that made me feel optimistic this week without mentioning the massive Counteroffensive that Ukraine launched in the northeastern part of their country. First of all, this is a huge tactical and strategic victory for the Ukrainians. At the tactical level, uh, taking the city of Izium and various of the other territories that they've taken back over the last couple of days uh, will cut off vital Russian supply lines and make it harder for them to. Uh, bring materiel up to various forward military positions and I believe also this will compromise their ability to hold on to the Donbass. Well, it'll make it harder in general for the Russians to continue to hold the Donbass uh, region. Uh, at the strategic level, this kind of huge moral victory gives the Ukrainians continued like fighting spirit and also uh, a lot of political experts seem to think makes it a lot more likely that political and military support coming from various Western countries to Ukraine will continue because uh, it's easier to sell the populations of Western democracies that we should be supporting the people of Ukraine in their fight to hold off a, you know, an attempted genocide from their fascist neighbor if there appears to be any chance of success or of them taking back some of their territory. So victories like this are very important at the strategic and political level. It's also, frankly, hilarious to see the reaction to this in Russia itself, where the exterminate the Ukrainians, nuke NATO, show them who's boss crowd is absolutely losing their minds, which is, I'm sorry, just, you know, really feeling the schadenfreude on this one. I mean, Vladimir Putin succeeded in repressing, driving into exile, or just murdering most of the decent people in Russia, but he apparently failed to stamp out the people that are even more crazy and awful than him. And now all those people are furious at him because, it turns out, strategic genius President Putin and the glorious Red Army actually kind of suck at war. At least war that goes in any way beyond raping, pillaging, and murdering civilians. That brings up another point that's worth mentioning about how meaningful it is that the Ukrainian military has managed to take back a bunch of this territory. Because in this case, it's not just about taking back territory. It's about freeing people. We need to recognize this is not a typical war. This is a genocide. The whole world knows the names of places like Bucha, like Mariupol. Not because, I don't know, Eurovision was held there or something like that. The world knows the names of those places. Because of what barbaric scum wearing the uniform of the Russian army did to the innocent civilian populations in those places. You hear frequently mentioned in news stories, just in routine at this point, like it's normal, about how once the Russians have control of a certain chunk of Ukraine for a little while, their first move is to quote, russify, unquote, that territory, which is to say, Start handing out Russian passports to the people there, start making sure that only Russian is spoken in those regions, replace all the signs, uh, you know, start putting Russian banks there, having people use Russian currency. Basically, trying to erase any Ukrainian identity that may have once existed in those places. We've seen in places like the ones I mentioned before and in others how willing Russian troops are to just kill civilians for no apparent reason, and how deliberately the Russian military has gone after civilians for offenses like having previously posted pro-Ukrainian things on social media. This is not just a land grab by a country that has absolutely no need of additional land. It is an attempt to eliminate Ukrainians as people. I'm pretty sure this Ukrainian counteroffensive in the north also interrupts one of the next steps of the Russian plan to erase and just bite off chunks of Ukraine by doing what they did in Crimea and holding one of their sham uh, referendums by which Russia would then annex that territory and just declare it part of Russia. War's not over. There's a lot more to go, a lot more territory to be taken back. This represents only a fraction ...of Ukrainian territory that's under Russian military control right now. Not to mention the black eye that this has given Putin's ego... ...will almost certainly uh, result in the Russian military... ...doing the only thing that they've shown that they are actually capable of doing... ...murdering a whole bunch of civilians. That being said... ...today, many, many, many people... ...are now able to leave their houses without anyone near as much fear of being raped or robbed or shot in the face for looking at an occupying soldier the wrong way who couldn't say the same thing a couple days ago. It's impossible to not feel good about that. Slava Ukraini. With that horribly butchered mispronunciation, sorry guys, I think I'll leave it there. All right, that's it for this episode of OK Talks. Probably my most rambly one to date. Uh, if you like the podcast, either as it was before or as it gets back up and running now, uh, please like it, subscribe to it. It should, uh, well, with the exception of the last one apparently, be appearing on all major podcast streaming platforms. Uh, and most of all, please share it with somebody else who might like it. Uh, for any of my audience who are on, who are on Twitter, uh, I also am. You can find me at owskendall. That's O-W-S-K-E-N-D-A-L-L. Feel free to tweet at me if there's anything you'd like me to talk about on here. Um, I really am thinking, as I continue this uh, process of trying to get the show up and running again, I'm thinking about uh, ways of doing that, uh, which might include more engagement uh, with folks who are listening. Um, So, you know, go follow me if you want. Uh, As always, thanks to Nate Wright for having designed the podcast artwork, and thanks to you for listening.